This is Sinners and Saints. Theology with an edge. Hey there, Adam Kalustian here, one of your co-hosts of Sinners and Saints, welcoming you to part two of the three-part remix series on Calvary Chapel. Two things to look for in this first segment. First is we're going to evaluate Chuck Smith's very explicit, very clear claims about his role and his authority as a pastor in the churches. We're going to see his biblical defense for the model and show you why it doesn't hold water. And the second thing you want to listen for is how we evaluate the Calvary Chapel claim that they, in a unique way, preach through the scriptures verse by verse. Thanks for listening to Sinners and Saints. You really need to begin to understand his philosophy of ministry because that's uh, foundational. And again, what we want to do here is we don't want to make things up about what Chuck is saying. We want to read from Chuck's own statements. And this is taken from the philosophy of ministry of Calvary Chapel. Now, he lays out sort of an elaborate diagram structure of what church government is in his own mind. But he ironically begins it with this statement saying, if we will just hang loose and let the Spirit lead and let the Spirit move, then we will have the mind of God. And then he says, don't try to get things too organized. Let me interrupt you for a minute, John. That's cold language for, I haven't done my homework, I really don't know what I'm talking about, so don't think about it too critically, because if you do, you might find out that it doesn't make any sense at all. Well, yeah, maybe so, but I was a bit perplexed after reading this statement on just let things uh, just hang loose and let the Spirit lead, and then he immediately transitions to the Israelite theocracy and gives this illustration of how God organized church government under the Old Testament with Moses at the top. So what you have in Chuck's understanding of church government is God, then you have Moses, and then you have Joshua, who was uh, the servant to Moses, and so he's kind of like assistant pastors, and then you have judges and priests, and then under that, the people of God. And so that, for him, is the Old Testament model. And so the New Testament model must then, by force of resistless logic, be similar. Well, what's really great is that, of course, Chuck doesn't believe that the Old Testament really applies to the New Testament church that way because he's actually a dispensationalist, which we'll talk about in another show. And so for any other things we try to bring across with covenant theology to show you the connectedness and how God works, he will tell us, no, there's a disconnect, you can't do that. But where it establishes his authority with a mosaic authority, then all of a sudden it's fully valid and should be received. Well, actually, Moses, what I think that is, is just hanging loose and letting the Spirit lead. (laughs) Never mind the inconsistencies. So you take this model and you sort of extrapolate from that and you get the New Testament model, even though we don't really go to the New Testament scriptures themselves, but have plenty to say about how to organize the church and its government. So then you go from that... God, Moses, priests, judges, and so forth. Then you go to the New Testament, and here's the model according to Chuck. Instead of God, you have now Jesus. Instead of Moses, you now have pastor. Instead of priests and judges, you now have the assistant pastors, the board, elders, and deacons. They're all on a a continuum at the third level of authority. And then under that, you have the congregation. And now... He summarized all this saying, we feel that this is the form of government that God desires for his church. That's really amazing because I've always understood that Moses was a unique prophet and Christ was a prophet like unto Moses according to the Deuteronomy 18 prophecy. And so what you've got going on here is Christ is no longer the one who comes in the type 
of Mos- or the fulfillment of the Mosaic type, and said you have the local pastor, particularly Chuck himself, as the fulfillment. This is a rather remarkable statement, and I would dare say very unorthodox. Well, the beautiful part, though, is if you follow this model, you're just as inspired as Moses is, okay? That is Moses under the Old Covenant. Because now the pastor, he says, is the one who we must recognize bears the responsibility to guide and direct the ministry of the local church because he's the one who, like Moses, he hears from God. So, obviously, he's the only one suitable to uh, guide and instruct the church and govern it. The rest of these people, I guess, are just puppets and figureheads. And then under that, then, uh, this instruction, you have the Board of Elders, he says, quoting, they discuss and decide the business aspects of the church, the spending of church funds and requests for help and so forth and so on. So that's kind of a a rough sketch of his own understanding of what the structure of church government should look like. Yeah, this goes very contrary to the historic understanding that the Reformers had, where they expected the elders to actually be theological guardians. They were there to help protect the doctrine so that the church would not be corrupted. In case you think we're making this up, let me read this from calvarychapel.com. If someone in the church comes to a board member about something they feel that the church ought to be doing, it is presented in the board meeting. The board will discuss it and pray about it together, and oftentimes the board will say, Chuck, what do you feel that we should do? You see, the board recognizes that God has called me to be the pastor of the church, the shepherd. In Calvary Chapel, the pastor is not a hireling. You see, some of these uh, board members are oftentimes businessmen and not the most spiritual within the church. In that case, listening to them, the church would become governed by men rather than governed by Jesus Christ. This is a crock. Basically, that means if you don't agree with Pastor Chuck, who's been sent by God, well, you're less spiritual and you ought not to be listened to. So there's even no reason to have the board when all said and done. He may as well just call them what they are, glorified secretaries, because they are there to take orders and not to question anything, because at the end of the day, Chuck makes a decision by his own testimony. Well, okay, you say, well, that's a little bit harsh. Clearly, they can't really work it out in that kind of a way. Well, he himself gives us an example where he did, he did just that. He talks about the story of a Korean a, a fellowship that the church was trying to gather together, and uh, he found this guy who's exceptionally gifted, who organized the Korean fellowship together. He also happened to be a medical doctor, ran his own practice very successfully. And he finally split off and formed his own little Calvary Chapel group. And they needed a board so they can organize as a church. And so Chuck goes over, he uh, lays hands on, ordains this board. And as soon as they do, he does that, the board calls for the immediate resignation of this organizing pastor slash medical doctor because they said, you either drop your medical practice and become our full-time pastor, or you're no longer the pastor of this church. So the man calls Chuck. He's absolutely distraught. And what was Chuck's response to this? We should listen to the wisdom of the board. We should heed the advice of the elders. Maybe they have a point there. You should be giving uh, your full-time strength to the ministry of the Word of God. No, what Chuck uh, counsels this man is, fire the board. So we ordained them one week, and we defrocked them the next. So here, overall, is just one example of how the doctrine of Chuck Smith and the Calvary Chapel movement runs flat contrary to the basic teachings of the Bible that the historic church has always believed. You've got to see that, you've got to identify it, and you've got to get out. We'll give you other examples when we come back to Sinners and Saints. This is Sinners and Saints. Theology with an edge. We want to give you some other examples of the Calvary Chapel movement and how their basic doctrines and practices are at odds with the teachings of the Christian church historically. I want to read you a statement from 
Papa Chuck himself. He says, there are certain distinctions that cause us as Calvary chapels to stand out among other evangelical churches. One of those things, he says, we could point to our shared commitment as Calvary chapels to systematic Bible teaching. So you're familiar with this. You know, you go to Calvary Chapel, and what happens? They're preaching through books. They'll read through whatever book they have in the Bible, and they'll try and explain it verse by verse. What do we think about their commitment to systematic Bible teaching? One, I think it's a wonderful idea that systematic Bible teaching does take place, but to say that this is somehow a Calvary Chapel distinctive and somehow almost implying that it's a new and unique thing is, I think, arrogant, and also it's you're maligning all the churches that have gone before, particularly the Reformers, who that's exactly what they did. We do have people that uh, visit our church from time to time who are good Christian people and being introduced to the Reformed doctrines, and they are surprised somehow when they come to our church that we say preach through books of the Bible, as if the Calvary chapels are the only ones that did it, and they come out of the Calvary chapels having been given the impression that only Calvary Chapel is the one who goes through the books of the Bible in their regular preaching. This is ridiculous. Well, it helps to get a little bit of the background on this for why this is his position. He relates his experience again uh, for those so-called desert desert years uh, where he would go from one outpost to another preaching his two years worth of evangelistic sermons and couldn't find any fruit to his ministry. And a quote that he gives in his philosophy of ministry, he says, I realized that I was emphasizing what man should be doing. They were sermons on the believer's walk, how they ought to be praying more, how they ought to be doing more. And he said, I kept on looking at them when I preached these evangelistic sermons. He said, I know everybody in the audience. They all believe in Jesus Christ. So basically what he's saying is, I don't need to preach the gospel to them anymore. What they really need is just instruction. That's what's going to motivate everybody. They just need teaching. And so this is where he gets this new insight, apparently, into teaching the books of the Bible piece by piece because he's tired of preaching the gospel. They need to be instructed. A couple of things here. First of all, the concept, the idea of preaching through biblical books, you need to understand, was fought for and rediscovered by the historic Protestants. So if you, like us, are committed to the instruction of God's people in the church from the Word of God and through books of the Bible, you need to go to historic Protestant churches that have fought for that over the years. The second thing is, I want you to think about the people early on in the Calvary Chapel movement, the pastors who were leading this movement. These guys simply were not trained to open the scripture in the original languages to exegete it with the help of those who have gone before them in church history and explain it. These guys came out of a a hippie movement. They opened the English Bible and all of a sudden they propped themselves up as experts, not trained formally, to lead the people in the Word of God. Now listen, I know this because I used to be one of them. From the time I was maybe 13 and I was seen as a good church boy, I was given the task of teaching different people in the church, youth at some points and then later as I grew older adults. I had no training, but I used to sit down with my English Bible and look at the various translations, have no understanding of the history of Christian thought and interpretation, and I was the one who was charged to lead people and explain the Scripture. And because I always knew a little bit more than the people who were hearing me, I was seen as this one who was so well-trained and the expert. But you got to understand, there's a whole denomination full of these, uh, founded on these kinds of ministers, untrained to exegete the Scripture. Okay, but what you're missing here, Adam, is that those people, though they might have been good and careful and faithful exegetes of the Word of God, going back to the original languages, understanding them in the light of the whole discussion throughout the history of the church, the problem with them is 
is that they were simply denying the anointing and the power of the Holy Spirit. So it's just dead orthodoxy. So you don't really need to be trained and instructed. What you need is the anointing and the power of the Holy Spirit. You need a word of prophecy. See, you don't need training. You just need to be in touch with the Holy Spirit. That's all the gifting you need, apparently. We fully grant that the Spirit of God must be present and must work through His Word, but you see, some of what's going on here is this idea that somehow the Calvary Chapel movement came out of nowhere and brought Christianity back in a lost and corrupt world. You see, there's no connectedness in how Chuck speaks of how this movement began. The Reformers never said that they were dropping out of the sky with the Bible and that there was no church. They were very clear. The church exists, but it is corrupted. We need to clear it up and now make it, bring it back as close as we can to the purity that God required. The Calvary Chapels have no such compunction about condemning the church that went before. And yet what's really funny is how identical they are to Roman Catholicism and all their methodologies. Everything is, if we do it, it's right. But Rome, in some ways, is better. At least Rome has a tradition to fall back on. These guys, whatever each of them says, as long as it conforms to Chuck's will, well, then that's orthodoxy. Reformation Radio. Theology with an edge. All right, Adam Kalustian back with you to take you into the second half of Part 2, the Remix series at Calvary Chapel. And you want to listen for a couple of things as we are evaluating in this segment the Calvary Chapel Statement of Faith. First of all, listen as we evaluate some of the articles in that Statement of Faith. And second, notice how, in the Statement of Faith, what they choose to include and what they choose not to put in there actually goes against their stated purpose that they don't want to be doctrinally divisive. Thanks for tuning in, Sinners and Saints. We welcome you back to Sinners and Saints. We're talking about the Calvary Chapel movement. We're talking about Chuck Smith. We're talking about, in this segment, the Calvary Chapel Statement of Faith. Calvary Chapel, I'm reading from it, has been formed as a fellowship of believers in the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Our supreme desire is to know Christ and to be conformed to His image by the power of the Holy Spirit. We are not a denominational church, nor are we opposed to denominations as such, only to their overemphasis of the doctrinal differences that have led to division in the body of Christ. By the way, uh, this is their introduction to the statement of faith. The reason you write a statement of faith is to show how you are distinctive from other groups. This is so silly. This is like a two-year-old saying, I don't like the fact that I'm a child. Well, you, you know, I don't want to be a child. Well, you are a child. Uh, Chuck Smith, Calvary Chapel. You are a denomination. You are a movement that has distinct beliefs. So stop making these statements and pretending like everybody else who has a statement of faith or everybody else who has a church is denominational and divisive over their doctrine. You are setting yourself distinct in these ways. Well, they have a great one in here. It's about maybe the fifth, sixth one down. I don't have numbers on it. We believe in all the basic doctrines of historic Christianity. Here you are trying to identify what it is people ought to believe, and you give this incredibly general statement, which, of course, every Mormon Jehovah's Witness and everyone else would subscribe to because they all claim to be the historic church. So this does no good whatsoever, but then they go into the distinctives of how they should sing. Like, how is that something that people should subscribe to? We say that, you know, that singing is one of those things that we call adiaphora. They are things indifferent that are decided according to the wisdom of the elders and the minister as they are interpreting the word. They make that a distinctive, but all the basic doctrines are just one sentence. That's crazy. So let's just skip over 2,000 years of church history, all the serious doctrinal debates over the Trinity, over the relationship of the two natures of Christ within the one person. Everything that was foundational in the history of the church gets a blurb, and now we get the statement on music in the context 
of a preamble which says we don't want to be divisive. Well, talk about the most divisive issue in the church today. That's music, and yet they're saying, oh, we don't want to be divisive. Doctrine is so bad, it, it, it leads to petty di uh, differences and stuff. And then they go to this distinctive which makes them separate from everybody else. Yeah, if you use hymns, if you use an organ, then you're probably not a true church because you've stifled the spirit of God which is trying to lead. And so that's one of their things is we don't do that. Let me quote exactly from the Statement of Faith. It says, We believe worship of God should be inspirational, and inspirational is underlined. Therefore, we give great place to music in our worship. And basically what that means is, if your worship doesn't look like our worship, and all the Calvary Chapel's worship looks very similar, uh, if, if your music does not look like our music, if your singing does not look like our singing, then it's not inspirational, then it is not the way that things should be done. Well, see, the problem with the way they're doing it in these older mainline Protestant churches is that the worship services are not flexible. Uh, apparently that's the new regulative principle of worship. They're, they're not flexible. Uh, and the open atmosphere of worship uh, that they have at Calvary Chapel, what it does is it opens up the emotions so that now you're able to receive that spirit-inspired uh, instruction, I guess, that Chuck gets directly from the pipeline he has with God and nobody else has. Well, what flexibility are they talking about anyway? Because you can go and set your clock right, the number of minutes they sing, by which songs they sing, in which order. You have the happy clappy songs, and you go to the sad meditative songs, and then you have the repetition by the uh, choir director or the music leader, whatever he's called. And then after a certain number of minutes, then the sermon starts. It's like, of course, it's, they're all liturgical. It's just that they don't have it written down. And it's not like the traditional dialogical where God speaks to you and you respond. So let's set aside the fact that, uh, that they profess a specific thing about music and ask, act as if it's some real broad principle, but really exclude all the other churches around. You know, you'd expect from the statement of faith, if they start with the statement that they believe the basic doctrines of Christianity and they don't want to get caught up in denominational differences, that the statement, in a sense, would be fairly broad. And on some things it is. It, it expresses the basic doctrine of the Trinity, which is good. It expresses the inerrancy of the Bible, which is good. But then all of a sudden you're reading down and you get this statement here. We believe in the personal, visible, and premillennial second coming of Christ to the earth. He will return with his saints and set up a kingdom of which there will be no end. So we're purporting to have this broad statement that includes all the basic teachings in the history of the Christian church. And then you have this very specific, very narrow doctrine of the no, second coming. No, no, you're wrong on this one because they are very broad because they're not specifying whether it's pre-trib, mid-trib, or post-trib rapture. So they're allowing all three of the minority dispensationalist views to be permitted. Well, okay, clearly, the, the, maybe the historic majority report, just to be fair, premillennialism did have uh, many subscribers throughout the early church and even later on in the church. But this whole pre-tribulational rapture doctrine is, is absolutely brand new, historically speaking. So there's no way you can say that that's what the church confesses. It, it never did it do that. Yeah, plus our main point here is not to discuss this. I said we'll do that on another show. But here is something that is very divisive and unnecessary to have because people who do not subscribe to this would still be considered by Calvary Chapel to be believers then why make it a point of orthodoxy, a confessional point that if you do not subscribe to this, you don't belong to us? That's divisive. Now, again, to be fair, Calvary chapels will say, well, we welcome people in our fellowship who will you know, disagree with us on some of these points of doctrine. You don't have to be premillennial to be in our church, but you have to be premillennial to be a minister in the church. And this goes back to what we were saying earlier. This Calvary chapel movement has separated itself from the historic Christian church based on the distinctives of their teaching leaders, of their pastors. 
So you see, you have to ask yourself, is it okay for a group of churches to be separate from the rest of the visible body of Christ based on the teachings which they have distinctively? This is why it's important for you. Maybe you don't even know what this stuff is all about. Premillennial, rapture, all this stuff. You need to understand that Calvary Chapel is the one who has uh, put these teachings forth and said, this is the reason why we must be distinct. This validates our distinctive movement. You've got to evaluate them, see if it's true, and if it's not, you've got to get out of there. Here's what we want people to do. Think about where you are. Like, self-consciously be aware why you're present in one church over another. We've told you some things about the authority structure of Calvary Chapel, and you can see it is based on one thing, Chuck Smith and his will and his desire. And we're telling you, if you believe the church is run by Jesus Christ for his glory, as revealed through the scriptures, written by the apostles, by the inspiration of the Spirit, then this is not the place for you. You need to go to where the scriptures are held above the minister, and where the people of God seek to understand their role in the historic church and all that has been taught. So what we are calling to you to do is to evaluate and, when necessary, to leave. Thanks for joining us tonight on Sinners and Saints. We've got one more on Calvary Chapel where we're going to explore perhaps their most uh, famous reason for divorcing themselves from the, the historic church. That is their view of salvation. We'll see you next time, Sinners and Saints. Join us next week as we tackle more topics with the truth of God's Word on Sinners and Saints. Theology with an edge.